Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Spiritual Dislocation by Pastor Sean Wood. Amen. Uh, We have, over the last couple of weeks, began a series working our way through the Book of Romans. I love the Book of Romans. Uh, as As we heard last week, Paul writes to a church that he's never been to. He's, he hasn't physically been to the church in Rome. He hasn't uh, founded this church in any way, shape or form, but he writes a letter to the church. But there's some problems in Rome and the problems stem from Emperor Claudius sending all of the Jews out of Jerusalem for five years. And so for five years, all the Jews are expelled from Jerusalem, but the church continues to grow. The church continues to flourish, uh, but we end up with a church full of non-Jewish Christians. No problem with that at all. Uh, That's what most of us in this room would fall under, I'm sure. But uh, then after five years, the Jews return to Jerusalem and the Jewish Christians join the Roman church and still no problems. But the Jews march on in and they say, you know what? You've got to have Jesus plus. Any gospel that says Jesus plus, wrong gospel. There's a mathematical equation that God has handed down that sounds like this. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And the Jews come along to the non-Jewish Christians and say, you know what? Yes, we adhere to Jesus. Yes, we can see the evidence in Jesus. But you've got to have Jesus plus. You've got to be circumcised. And you can only eat these certain foods, which included kale. But you can only eat these certain foods at certain times. You have to adhere to all of our ceremonies and feasts. And the non-Jewish Christians are going, hang on a moment, that's not what we signed up for. That's not what we were told. That's not the gospel. We were told it was all about Christ. So Paul now writes to a somewhat disjointed church. And the one message that he writes, if, if he wants to bring unification, if he wants to sift attitudes, if he wants to sort out desires, what he's going to do is he's going to bring one message and the message is the gospel. Paul knows full well that if the people of God grab the full revelation of the gospel message, it'll transform not only their lives, but the church. You can't have the gospel and division. You can't, you can't have the gospel fully impacting your heart and harbour unforgiveness and bitterness. You can't do it. Incompatible. You also cannot have a gospel the gospel of Jesus Christ impacting your heart and be half-hearted, lukewarm or complacent towards God. You just can't. As we read through the gospels, there were three, only three reactions to the person of Jesus Christ. The first one was that everybody wanted to hate him, hated him and wanted to kill him. The second one was they would run away from him. And the third one was they were absolutely smitten by him and abandoned their lives to follow him. I pray that I would fall under number three. And the message of the gospel that Paul writes to the Romans is a gospel that will bring every single person to number three. You've got no choice. It's a beautiful message. Last week, we looked at two very profound verses, uh, verse 16 and 17, which Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yes, I know, as unbelievable as it is, we're going to let the Greeks in. And the Italians, brother. Isn't that unbelievable? It's unbelievable that they would let Italians in. But they're Australian. (laughs) Australian. 
what else is interesting is that uh, Paul writes to Rome and this gospel message turned Rome upside down, absolutely turned it upside down. And if Rome, if in the time that Paul was writing, if you wanted to put your finger on the map to one city that was full of wickedness, evil and idolatry, it was absolutely Rome. If there was one city that you would put your finger on and you would say God could not work in that city, it was Rome. But God, by his power and by the power that is in the message of the gospel, turned that place upside down. Here's the extent that this gets to. By the time Nero becomes emperor of Rome, he so hates the gospel message that he sets fire to Rome and he blames the the Christians for lighting the fires, which a persecution breaks out. Nero had all of the physical capabilities of wiping the Christians off the face of the earth and he couldn't do it. In fact, the church flourished. Under Nero, Paul would be beheaded. Peter would be crucified upside down. This message had an impact upon the wickedness of Rome. And of course, we know of John. John was put in a boiling vat of oil and when it had no effect on him, Nero said, get him out of my face. Put him on Patmos. This gospel message is the most hated message on the planet. And we're going to see why today. We're going to begin to unpack why people hate this message. We're going to begin to understand why there are countries on this planet that do not permit you to speak this message. You can go into any country you like and tell them about Mickey Mouse, but you cannot go into any country you like and tell them about Jesus Christ. It's a powerful message for today. Today we're going to look at spiritual dislocation. We're going to have a look starting in verse 18 in a moment. But uh, when, I, when I'm out fishing, you know, every two or three months, <laughs> when I'm out fishing... In my little pocket of the universe that I sit, I'm amazed because what seems like random chaos going on around you, we've got birds up in the trees, we've got insects all over the water, but the insects are there to feed the birds and the birds are there because the insects are there, but the insects are there because the weed is there and the weed's there at the right time of the year in the right place and all of them are there because the fish are there. You see, the insects are there, which feed the small fish, which feed the bigger fish. That's an easy equation. And Reuben hasn't worked it out yet, but that's an easy <laughs> equation. And I marvel that what seems like randomness and chaos is just absolutely beautiful order. God has put everything in beautiful order. And uh, recently in Tasmania, I haven't been back, but recently they had uh, fires in the National Heritage Area on all, some of the lakes that we used to fish. I've seen photos. And those fires wiped out all of the trees that surrounded those lakes, which, believe it or not, has an enormous impact on the fishing because all of the insects that the fish eat hatch and breed inside of those bushes and it completely affects everything. And what happens is if you take one small thing out of its place, it affects everything. If, if you take the mayfly out of Tasmania, the trout don't survive. They live on mayfly. If you take one thing out of its place, that's why people want to get rid of sharks out of our oceans. You take sharks out of our oceans, we've got a big problem. There will be a dislocation. 
some years ago, my father-in-law is the president of the cycling club in Launceston. And uh, yeah, my boys will remember this. But uh, my father-in-law asked me if I could push the cyclists because they were low on, on cyclists for the race. They have a big carnival at Christmas time every year. And I said, sure, I can do that. And that was fine until a guy of about 115 kilos walks up and says, can you, can you push me? It was a bit more like, can you push me, mate? I was like, yeah, okay, no worries. <laughs> Um, and he's actually now the president of the cycling club, but you have to stand on a bank like that and grab them by the seat and push them, and all went well until my kneecap went around the other side of my leg. I dislocated my kneecap. Yeah, you think man flu's bad. I've got to confess, I cried. And then they put me in an ambulance and they said, I think we can get it back into place. I went, oh, whoa. Well, you're using the word think. And of course, uh, I soon realised that just one small thing out of place actually meant that my whole body was out of joint. I couldn't do anything. And I ran my own business at that point in time. I was enormously busy. And I can remember saying to the doctor, "Uh, listen, uh, how long is this going to take until I can get back to work? And he said, you'll at least be in the splint for two weeks. I went, oh. So three days later, I went back mowing lawns for a living. I shouldn't have done that, but I did. But I learned a very valuable lesson how the very smallest thing out of place actually affects everything else. And when God is out of his place, it will affect everything else. There is a spiritual dislocation on this planet. And Jesus came to put it back into place. What a beautiful story that is. We're going to look today at, we're going to begin to look at it as Paul does, the the need for the gospel. As Paul is now going to unpack the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at why, why do we need that? We'll have a look more at the argument in a moment. But he begins to paint a picture of human nature. And as Paul does, it can be a reasonably black and bleak picture of the human nature. But here's the good news. The, the message of the gospel of Jesus shines ever brighter and ever more glorious against the black backdrop of human nature. Paul, by the time he has gotten to chapter 3, it takes him three chapters to do it, by the time he gets to chapter 3, he's going to so expose our wickedness that we all know full well we are in need. You see, we live in a society today that doesn't have a crisis. But the gospel presents a crisis. Every heart outside of Jesus has a crisis. As we read the first part of today's verses, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Two very interesting words of men who by their unrighteousness, here's an enormous one, suppress the truth. We're going to have a look at that one as well. We live in an age where everybody wants to suppress the truth. But the first part of this verse is the wrath of God. This is a subject that is not very well hurled. We don't want to talk about the wrath of God. We don't, we don't want to talk about an angry God. And, and in fact, uh, just some years ago, the, uh, the number one bestseller on the New York Times bestseller list was a book by, the name, by a guy by the name of Rob Bell. If you, if you ever see a book on the shelf with Rob Bell's name on it, don't walk away, friends, run. But it, it swept 
America by storm because it was a book that presented a God that wouldn't have, that there's no eternal consequences for what we do here. Here's the paraphrasing message of the book Love Wins. Everybody gets to heaven somehow, some way. We all just get there by some means. I want to tell you that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not the kind of news that everybody wants to hear, but that's not the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was clear that there is a problem with inside of every human heart, but as Jesus so gloriously does, he offers hope for what we find in our hearts. You won't find it anywhere else. We can put a man on the moon, but we can't fix the human heart. But what does the wrath of God actually mean? It probably doesn't mean sometimes what we're told it means. Wrath is a hot, passionate anger, yes. But the suggestion in the Greek is not a reactive, out-of-control anger. It's more of a position or a stance that is held. So when we speak about the wrath of God, we're going to have a look at what it's against in a moment. But as we look at the wrath of God, we're going to understand as God's stance against sin. Well, there's a word we're not allowed to mention in churches anymore, sin. Where did that word go? Glad you can make it, brother. (laughs) Good to see you, Harold. The wrath of God is God's stance against the rebellion and the sin of man. We're going to unpack this more as we work our way through. But God's wrath is a present reality in which all outside of Christ stand. The gospel of Jesus removes neutral ground. The wrath of God is a position that if you are outside of Jesus, you are currently under and it does have a future consummation. Let me unpack what this looks like. Maybe we can get an understanding from a story we're all familiar with. Who here knows of the account of Noah and the flood? Of course we are. Begins in Genesis chapter 6 and works its way through Genesis chapter 7. But but it's a beautiful message that speaks to today's time because what had happened was God had become so grieved in his heart at the wickedness that was inside of man that he decided judgment must come. But as God does, he he decides that there would be a a period of at least appealing to people. He comes to Noah and says, I'm going to bring judgment, so you need to build an ark. We all know the story of the ark. Noah builds an ark. takes him 120 years. Peter says in his second epistle that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What was God doing through Noah? For 120 years, God was sending a message to everybody else. There's a different direction. What Noah did was he stood up in an evil day and he said, you know what? I'm going to go this way. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to honour God. I'm going to do what his word says. And for 120 years, says Peter, he preached a message to them people just by the life that he lived. Sounds a little bit like 2019. But the whole idea of the ark was everybody was under the wrath of God. And when God sent judgment on the known world, clarify that later, when God sent judgment on the known world, there was a safe place. And then we read in the account of Noah that Noah and his family found a safe place in the ark. And when God sent the waters upon the earth, it was absolute chaos outside. But inside that ark, 
No harm came to any of the animals. They even put the snakes on their pastor list. There was no harm to the animals. There was no harm to Noah. And as we advance forward to our day, every single person is under the wrath of God, but God has prepared another ark. His name is Jesus. And if you come inside of Jesus today, you are outside the wrath of God. And you will be safe only if you are inside of Jesus. The gospel removes neutral ground. The gospel removes the grey. There is black, there is white. You are in the ark or you are outside. Beautiful, beautiful verse in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1. Every other translation actually gets it wrong except for the old King James. Every translation said that God said to Noah, go thou into the ark. (laughs) The old King James gets the Hebrew right. God says, come thou into the ark. God was already in there. I've prepared a place for you, Noah. God's prepared a place for every person who will, as we will see later, lay down their guns and surrender to Jesus Christ. God's wrath is the present reality in which all outside of Christ stand. What's going on here? Paul says that it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. God is revealing. And it's interesting what the Greek is pointing out here. In in verse 17, as well as here, the word revealed is God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. We found that out. Turned a light on for Martin Luther. He got it. Bang, I don't have to be righteous by myself. Jesus has already done it for me. This righteousness that was revealed, uh, as we said last year, uh, last week, if, if I was to apply right now for the astrophysics lecturer position in the local university, how many people know that if I handed them my resume, they're probably going to go, <laughs> no, is probably what they're going to say alongside of everything else. And the reason they're going to say that is they're going to return back to me and they're going to say, this resume that you've presented to us, Sean, doesn't qualify you in any way, shape or form to hold this position. And what Paul is saying is the resume that mankind has, every single person has a resume that does not qualify you in any way, shape or form to stand before God. So what Jesus does is says, here's my resume. You take that. And because you take my resume to God, you can hold the position where you stand right where I stand. I don't think we grab the the enormity of that. But now his wrath is revealed. We're going to unpack the argument as we work our way further through. But for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And this revealing is, yes, a disclosing and an unveiling, but it's actually more a historical point of uh, where it's come into reality. So God's wrath has a historical reality where it's coming to being. The the righteousness of God had a point in history. It's revealed. It has historical weight. You see, God through the law and more profoundly through Christ has revealed that all mankind stands under wrath. We're going to have a look at a real spooky word in the future of Romans. It's called predestination. Everybody gets it wrong. Everybody is thinking strings and puppets and and a God that pulls one string and a God that leaves the other one. That's not what it means at all. But unless 
Christ comes upon a person's heart, we are all destined for one conclusion. Every person. And God is revealing his wrath on and against all ungodliness. And that, that word ungodliness is a very interesting word. Ungodliness basically is a rejection of God. We have two words here, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And the first one speaks about our vertical position with God. It speaks about mankind living in complete rejection of God. The best way to understand the emphasis here in the Greek is it is mankind desiring to be rid of God. It is we want to get rid of God. We want to do away with God. But because they can't do that, they live their lives as though they have done so. And Paul unpacks this a little bit more when we speak about suppressing the truth in a moment. But this ungodliness is living your life as though God does not exist. When, when I'm at the supermarket, when I'm at the gym, when I'm out and about fishing every once in a while, I've come to the realisation that there is an enormous amount of people that are conducting their lives like God does not exist. But I wonder for a moment, I wonder for a moment if we inside the church are actually off the hook here. I wonder, yes, we accept the fact that God exists. Yeah. Yes, we believe in Jesus. But do our lives portray, if we grab the fullness of the reality that God exists and he spoke the universe into existence, I wonder how that would change our daily lives. I wonder whether we would be so concerned about finances. I wonder whether we would be so concerned about the troubles that come against us if we're thinking, hang on a second, I'm a child of the one who spoke the universe into existence. I wonder whether sometimes we've grabbed the enormity of that. My argument is that you will find ungodliness outside of these walls. My argument is you will find ungodliness inside these walls. But largely, we have a misconception that God, in his wrath, sends people to an eternal consequence. And you know what? I don't think God sends anybody there at all. I think C.S. Lewis got it right when he said that the gates of hell are actually locked on the inside. I've spoken to many people. And you can present them with the best evidence and arguments. We've got some really strong evidence for the existence of God. Even stronger evidence, historical evidence, that validates the person of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how much you do that, some people will just, no, no. Because they don't want to live their lives. They don't want to give over control of their lives. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, we are all rebels against God, in which the plea of the gospel is that we would lay down our guns and stop fighting against him. And so C.S. Lewis says, I'm not sure God sends anybody anywhere. I think he, he says, I think we would find that the gates of hell are locked on the inside and people are still trying to keep God out. We want God out of our schools. We want God out of our marriages. We want God out of our family life. We want God out of our country. And if Labor had got voted in, that's what would have happened. A lot of policies behind closed doors that weren't being released. Have a nice retirement, Mr. Shorten. In 2,000 years since Paul wrote this letter, nothing's changed. 
It's interesting how Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. You got it right. Sin may look differently today, but it's still the same. It stems from a, a heart that wants our own life. We want, we want life on our own terms in our own way. Jesus comes and says, put down your guns. Lay down your guns. Paul goes on and says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We'll look at suppress the truth in a moment. S.L. Johnson says beautifully that immorality in life proceeds from an apostasy in doctrine. What that basically means is uh, what we see in mankind as immorality and wickedness and evil stems from the fact that there's a dislocation inside of each and every person. We behave towards other people because of a dislocation inside of us. The atrocities of World War II, the atrocities of Pol Pot, all that you could stack up and say, you can stem it back to one problem. There's a dislocation in people's spirits. When people are out of relationship with God, when people are out of sync with God, there is a dislocation that affects how we treat everybody else. That's unrighteousness. And then Paul goes on and says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Everybody's trying to suppress the truth. Everybody's trying to argue away the truth. We've even moved into, we've moved into a time now where people are making covenants with the universe, whatever that looks like, and whatever else they're trying to do. And it's all about what is good for you. It's all about truth is not objective anymore. Truth is subjective. Truth is whatever's true for you is true for you. So you go rock your boat over there and whatever's true for me is true for me. There's a problem with that. There's an objective truth. And that truth is Jesus. Truth is not something we necessarily mentally agree with in the New Testament. Truth is something that is to be obeyed. In the Greek, the the emphasis on truth. Pilate asked Jesus one question, what is truth? And then he walked away before he got the answer, but it was standing right before him. (laughs) Truth is not necessarily a set of what we agree with, but it's more about a person. But people want to, they want to dull down and suppress the reality of God. We We don't want to hear about Jesus because it has an effect When you talk about Jesus, when you talk about the gospel, it exposes the fact that we have a problem. It exposes the fact that we're we're sitting in the dark, reliant on somebody else. Mankind is trying to suppress the truth. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need of him and their unwillingness to admit it. It's what I said before. They're trying to suppress the truth and remove the crisis. What was the turning point for the prodigal son? The, the prodigal son takes his inheritance. The prodigal son goes into a land far away. So who moves? When, if there's distance between us and God, who moves? <laughs> God doesn't move. He chases us, but he doesn't move. So he goes into a far off land and he spends all his money. But the turning point for the prodigal was he came to himself, says the Gospel of Luke. He came to himself and he realized, I'm in a position. It was positional. 
Here I am feeding the pigs, which was an enormously low position for Jews. They hated pigs. He says, here I am feeding the pigs when I could be back in my father's house. And he goes back to his father's house thinking, I'll be lucky if, God, if, if my father lets me in just as a lowly servant. But the father runs out with a robe and a ring, put some, put some feet on the man's, put some shoes on the man's feet, give him a ring. And that's a profound story. But he found himself out of position. And we live in a society today that doesn't have a crisis. How many, how many times have I heard people say, I'm a, I'm a good person. You know, I pay my taxes, I don't, I don't do anything wrong, I don't rob from anybody. Yes, but you're dislocated. You're dislocated. Paul is making an argument, which we will finish in this paragraph right now. The argument that Paul is making, Paul says in verse chapter 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel, Paul? For it is the power of God to salvation. How so, Paul? How is it the power of God for salvation? Why? Because in the wonderful gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. He's building his argument, building his argument. In this wonderful gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. But but why is it needed, Paul? Because God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. We need his righteousness because we're beginning to understand that we all exist under wrath. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that suppress the truth. And now for the last part of this argument, how is truth being suppressed? Paul, how is truth being suppressed? He goes on and says in verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made around us. The last part of that verse is one that nobody wants to hear. So they are without excuse. We live in a society today that is manufacturing excuses. More on that in a moment. The first part of it is that uh, I need to start introducing the possibility that just before Easter, we're going to be very blessed as a church. I pray we'll be very blessed. If you're in the United States right now and you said the word Hugh Ross in any church, Immediately, everybody would go, I know who you're talking about. And he is enormously well-known in the US, and he has built a creation model that lines up with science and the Bible. I'll let him unpack that when he comes, because we have a very rare opportunity to have him for one night here on the Tuesday before Easter at the moment. I'm trying to put all that together. And... And he will say some stuff. I'm going to put it right out on the table now. He's going to say some stuff that's going to rock your boat. And he's going to sit on this platform and he'll answer every single one of your questions. Okay, he's going to, he's going to use phrases like millions of years. Okay, so that's going to rock people's boats. But he'll sit here and answer all of your questions and I'll let him do that. But he writes a book which is called Why the Universe is the Way It Is. And in that, he has, uh, we're talking a man who's one, deeply autistic, but you wouldn't know. 
He's deeply autistic, but also, amazingly enough, he, he came to faith in Christ by the fact that someone had given him a Gideon's Bible. And he says, I hadn't spoken to a Christian for the first nine years after I was saved. He says, so all the knowledge I have about God, I took the Bible, I studied the Bible, I studied science, and this is where I came to. And what he says is, and he says correctly, is that God has actually given us two books by which we may know him. The first one's the Bible. God has revealed himself. God reveals his glory and who he is in the Bible. But he also reveals his glory and the absolute profound fact that he exists in creation. If you stop for just a moment and start logically working your way through how everything came to be, you're left with God. And so Huros would say that God has given us two books by which we may begin to understand him. One of the wisest men I've ever met said that science searches for the how, the Bible reveals the who. Science will tell you how things have happened. The Bible tells you who caused it, who's behind it. And I'm going to briefly run through, but we live in a universe that had a beginning. No doubt about that. There is not an astrophysicist on the planet that denies the Big Bang. Problem is, if you've got a Big Bang, you've got to have a Big Banger. That's a a story for another day. (laughs) Einstein said, Einstein had some problems because he could see that everything he was observing in the universe is pointing to something far outside of us. But Einstein said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is the fact that it's actually comprehensible. We can actually study it. We can actually find out how the laws and everything like that works. So the universe had a beginning. The universe is knowable. That's what Einstein was, was baffled by the fact that we can actually study and we can actually see the intricate details. The universe is regular. Unlike a baby's bowel movements, the universe is regular. And this, this is enormous because if, if you do not hold to the existence of God, you are what they call today an atheist. Agnostic is grey gray area, no grey exists. So you're either a hold to the fact that God exists or you don't. And if you don't, then what you're telling me is everything came into being from nothing. We have a universe from nothing. We have, we have everything from nothing and you can't get away from the fact that what we have right now is the process of random chaos that all just muddled its way together and poof, here we go. And if that's the case, how do you get such enormous regularity out of such chaos? How do you get that? How does something come from nothing? When was the last time an elephant popped into your lounge room? Just poof. You're sitting there watching The Bachelorette. <laughs> for, for those that are coming on Sunday night, you'll get that. Don't miss tonight because The Bachelorette's finished, so you've got to come tonight now. You're sitting there watching The Bachelorette and all of a sudden it doesn't happen. Why? Because it's never happened. There isn't a time that we can look back at any part of the universe and say, look, something came from nothing. doesn't happen. doesn't happen. There's somebody behind it. And what we actually find is, astrophysicists know this. Whether they 
hold to God or not, they say, there's a lot here we can't answer. So what they do is they start building back doors. Richard Dawkins built a back door. He, he was a naturalist and he's now turned agnostic. But Richard Dawkins said, when confronted with the reality of the fine tuning in the universe, he said, well, I explain it like this. Many, many years ago, aliens came and seeded the planet and now we have what? It takes a lot less faith to believe the Bible. But they're building back doors. The universe is regular and the fine-tuning in the universe. I'm not going to go into it right now. We'll go into it more uh, on Invite Sundays and so forth. But the fine-tuning of the universe. But it speaks to things like the force of gravity. If you move the force of gravity just an nth degree either way, boom, no possibility of, of complex life. And so the, the laws and the constants that we understand. Paul says, for his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. If, if you are living on this planet, surely we came from somewhere. Surely five minutes of just reflecting on how this planet works brings questions to your mind. Who could possibly be behind that? There must be somebody behind it. Paul, in saying his invisible attributes, what's an attribute? An attribute is anything that God has revealed to be true about himself. Paul lists two, but let me fly a few off the handle for you. Uh, Some of the attributes of God that he has revealed in both scripture and in creation of himself is that God is self-existent. He relies on nobody else outside of himself. God is self-sufficient, doesn't rely on anybody else. God is eternal. How many parents here have had their kids ask them, but where did God come from? Who made God? How many, has anybody asked? Just my kids. My kids are special, there's no doubt about that. But (laughs) (laughs) They forget that their mum is in Tasmania and they could be fasting for a little while. (laughs) God is eternal. No one created God, he's always existed. Time and space are only things that are imposed upon us. God is unchangeable. Mm. God of the Old Testament... People speak like there was two gods, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. (laughs) Same God. God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. A bit like most parents in this place. I'm kidding, of course. Teenagers know everything, don't they? Yeah. (laughs) God is omnipresent. That's like every parent in this place. Kids, I need you to know one thing. Teenagers, your parents are everywhere. They know everything. God is sovereign. We will explore the sovereignty of God as we work our way through Romans, but that's a beautiful truth. God is absolutely sovereign. It means he answers to nobody outside of himself. He does what he does. Does anybody want to know what God's going to do next? Let me tell you, God's going to do whatever he wants. Why? Because he's God. That's what the sovereignty of God looks like. But most important, as Paul highlights, God is all-powerful, he's omnipotent, and creation points to the divine. All these are clearly perceived and have been clearly perceived in creation around us, Paul says, so they are without excuse. We live in a society that wants to create excuses. I do not in any way, shape or form diminish the fact that nearly every single person, if, 
If we got every person up on this stage and said, tell us your story, there would be pain in that story. There would be, there, there would be possibly tragedy in that story. There would be hurt in that story. There would be wounds in that story. But let me tell you, friends, when you stand before God, you will not have any excuses. C.A. Spurgeon says, I am in great need of a saviour. And I have a great saviour for my need. If you are in this room today and you have needs and you have hurts, I want to introduce you to the one person who can actually heal you and bring wholeness, and it's Jesus Christ. But I want to be absolutely clear on this. When you stand before God, and everybody, Scripture's clear, everybody will give an account of their lives before God. But when you stand before God, nobody else is going to be in the room. You're not going to be able to stand there and go, well, mum and dad, they're not going to be there. Well, my sister, no, they're not going to be there. That person in church, they're not going to be there. You're not going to have any excuses. What about the people groups? They've got no excuse. Why? Because everything around us points to the existence of God. We just suppress it. We try to ignore it. We try to argue it away. Nobody wants to hear this word. Nobody wants, everybody wants to rub that, they want to get in a razor and rub that part out. So they are without excuse. Now, I want an excuse for what I do. You've got no excuse. We only have an answer, and that's Jesus. Jesus came and in three years absolutely penetrated the hearts of all mankind. He exposed the condition of the human heart, but so beautifully didn't leave us there. He gave us hope. So we are without excuse. I want to offer everybody here this morning spiritual relocation. As I asked the worship team if they'd like to come back. You know, A.W. Tozer says, he says, let the searching man reach a place where life and lips join to say, be thou exalted. And what A.W. Tozer is saying is, let the searching person reach a place where God is put back in his right place. Here's the problem with those who don't know Jesus. You have a spiritual dislocation that only he can put back into place. And there is a trumpet call in the church today to put God back in his rightful place. Because there is a dislocation sometimes in our own lives. There's dislocation in my life sometimes where I need to put God back in his right place. And today, if you need prayer for any reason, then I'd like to open up the the front for you. If you. If you find yourself, if you're sitting here today and you go, I'm not sure whether I'm sitting in that ark. I'm not sure whether I'm inside that ark or whether I'm outside, then make sure today before you leave, please. But I want to ask every single person in this room today one question, very challenging one to answer. What place does God hold in your heart? Because anything apart from number one, and there's a dislocation. History tells us of both saints and churches that made a decision to put God back in his rightful place. And the gospel swept people's hearts and lives.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning. Oh, how thankful we are for Jesus. Thank you for the ark. We don't deserve the ark, Father God. We don't don't deserve it. But thank you for grace, because your grace melts our hearts. We deserve the full impact for our sins, but you don't count it against us. You reach out to us. I pray that every person in this place would know you reaching out to them today. And I pray that every person would put you back in your rightful place. In their own hearts and in their own lives, I pray. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.